One, two, there we go. I hate this mic as well. Anyway, what is you may not think that you've got a theology. You may think that theologies are only for people who stand at the front and talk or write books. But if you believe in God, then you've got a theology. So we're all on, we're all on a journey of relationship with God. We're all at different stages and different levels of understanding. But one of the strengths of the bay, or one of the strengths I think about the bay, is that we seek to honor one another and accept one another even though we see things differently. And believe me, we see things differently. <laughs> That's because the bottom line is for all of us, loving Jesus is the common denominator. We may disagree on some of the bits and bobs and some of the stuff around the edge, but we all agree that it's about loving Jesus. Uh, and that's why we can accept one another and honor one another. Now, some of the things that I've shared over the past few weeks, according to your feedback, have been a challenge to some folk. Um, as I said before, what I share is a reflection of where I'm at, of my journey with God. And I think if the challenge makes you think, right, then that's good. It's good to think. It's good to come to church and think, right? But in saying that, you should never, ever feel obligated to believe or embrace something simply because it has been taught or shared from the front. You should not feel obligated to do that. Instead, we should all be like good Bereans. As it says in Acts 17, they received the message and then they examined the scriptures to see if what they heard was true. Okay? They were a noble bunch, it says. They were noble and they examined the scriptures to see if what was said was true. Now, sadly, more often than not, we as Christians, we examine the scriptures to prove that what we've heard is false. That's usually the tack we take. You know, we have our own understanding of God, and if something, if something comes against that and we're rattled, we think, hang on, I need to get me concordance out to start looking up passages which will reinforce what I believe so that I don't have to think about what that person's just said. That's not being a good Berean. But we all have like a, a reasoned theology, and this has like an internal alarm, okay? It does which goes off when you hear something that's contrary to what we believe. Over the past couple of weeks, it's probably been like a fire engine going past. <laughs> but you do, you sit there and you kind of, you know, you're quite comfortable and, some, and then suddenly somebody says something and you think, hang on, did he, what did he just say? I'm not sure I actually believe that. And this little alarm goes off in your head, you see. We've all got it. We've all got it because we're all comfortable with where we believe we are at theologically and I've yet to meet anybody who thinks that their theology is incorrect <laughs> everybody thinks they know what it's all about everybody thinks they're right right so when somebody says something that rattles your cage your little alarm goes off and then what happens is we pitch our tent and we rebel all borders you know nothing is getting past nothing's coming in because something is actually an affront 
to my understanding. That's where we're at. That's how life is. But we should be good Bereans and search the scriptures. It's not as random as it seems, this. Do you know why God gave us the gift of tongues? Horrible word, tongues, but it's kind of slipped into Christian jargon. All it means is language. So why did God give us a gift of praying in a language that we don't understand? Why? It's because it is spirit-to-spirit communication. It is pure prayer. You don't have to worry what to say in that circumstance when you're praying for the person, when you pray in tongues, because you let your spirit speak to God. It bypasses your brain. Your conscious understanding And therefore, what happens is you can't interfere. Your spirit just flows. And I wonder how many prayers and proclamations you've uttered in the spirit that your theology would have disagreed with. (laughs) And you didn't know about it. I think it's one of God's little jokes. We need to learn to listen and discern with our spirit so that when somebody talks, when somebody teaches, we don't just filter what we hear through our theological processing, but we are open to fresh revelation. It's good that, I'm, that I've got the opportunity to speak two weeks on the trot. That doesn't often happen, but it has happened in this case. Because it gives me a chance to respond to some of the questions that people ask you the previous week. As Alan said last night, have we got enough time? (laughs) (laughs) I said last week that because of the cross, we were all born forgiven. If I hear any bells ringing, I'll know what it is. And not just believers, but all of humanity was born forgiven since the cross. If you've got problems with that, you've got problems with God. Because that is what the cross is all about. It was forgiveness of sins for the world, for the whole world. They were forgiven at the cross, right? We were born forgiven. God the Father and God the Son together created a new covenant of forgiveness. So, sin is not high on God's agenda anymore because forgiveness is a done deal. There are no more sacrifices for sin. So therefore, we ask the question, so what happens then when we sin? Because it still goes on, I've noticed. (laughs) Since God has permanently forgiven us at the cross, what are the consequences of the sinful choices that we make in our life? I mean, it is amazing, it is awesome, it is mind-blowing that we are pre-forgiven and eternally loved by God. But when we sin, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we choose to sin, and most of your sins are a choice, you choose to do it. Very few of your sins, probably none, 
are what they call sins of omission. You know, sins where you just forgot to do something or you forgot to do this or it just slipped in. Most of your sins are conscious acts, conscious decisions that you make. When we do that, when we choose to sin, we are not living up to our identity as new creations in Christ. We're not loving one another as we should. And this grieves the Holy Spirit because he knows our potential. It's not an issue of his forgiveness or love being withdrawn. It's an issue of walking in the light and living in our identity. That is the issue. Not that we should have this obsession with sin because sin is dealt with. The issue is, are we prepared to walk in the light? Are we prepared to live in the identity that God has given us and expects us to live in? But don't I have to confess my sin? Don't I have to do something to kind of trigger all this? Well, there are two extremes. One extreme is to tell people that they must do something before God can forgive them. That's what's known as law. And we've left all that behind. Remember, performance, performance, performance. That was, that was the old covenant. We are, we are meant to be in a position where we're resting in God. But it's not performance, performance, performance anymore. The grace of God says it is done. It is done. Rest in that. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is to tell people that because they're forgiven, they're saved. And that's called universalism, which means that everybody's going to heaven. That's what universalism means. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Because forgiveness does not equal salvation. Okay? Salvation is not the absence of sin... Salvation is believing in Jesus and accepting God's grace. That's what salvation is. Now, a problem is that a, a, lot of, a lot of religion has crept into Christianity. You know, when you have to fill these forms out, it says, what's your religion? I'm, you know, I don't have a religion. You know, Christianity is not a religion. Yet, people make it a religion. That's when you bring the rules in. That's when you bring in the law. But a religious interpretation of Christianity changes the meaning of words like repent or confess. The word repent is not a sincere regret or remorse of wrongdoing leading to behavioral change. It simply means to change the way you think. Right? That is the essence of what repentance is. Change the way you think. Think differently and then act differently. That's what repentance means. That's why when you read scripture, you read about God repenting. There are at least two occasions in the Bible where it says God repented. It didn't mean that he'd actually sinned and had to say sorry. It meant he changed his mind. He thought differently about a situation. The other word is confess. Now confess is a, a Greek word which... It doesn't mean to acknowledge or review your sins, right? It actually means to agree with or to say the same thing as another person, as another. To agree with or to say the same thing as another. That's what it means when it says confess. 
When we confess our sins to God, we're not listing them for forgiveness. When we confess our sins, we proclaim, we agree that God has forgiven us, that Christ has set us free, and that we've been freely given his righteousness. So what should confession look like? And this is what confession should look like. That we acknowledge that we've messed up. That we don't delude ourselves into thinking we're into like sinless perfectionism and that really we never sin. But when we do screw up, we acknowledge, we own that and we acknowledge that we've messed up. But we also acknowledge that in Christ we are completely forgiven. Not because of our merit, not because we're good guys, but because of what he did on the cross. Because of grace. Because of believing in Jesus. Then we thank God that our sins are not who we are anymore. Our sins don't define us. And that he's made us the righteousness of Christ. That's what should define us. And then if we're really meaning business, we ask God what lies we're believing that caused the sinful action in our lives in the first place. What are we believing that's not true about ourselves? And we ask what truth we need to embrace to help us not to repeat those sinful actions. And then we thank God that he has chosen not just to forgive us, but to forget our sin completely. That's more what confession should look like. Rather than taking your list of sins, you know, keeping short accounts with God in case you get knocked down by a bus. Because if you've got un unconfessed sin and you get knocked down by a bus, you're in trouble. That's what, that's what you, I used to be taught. So keep short accounts with God when you go to bed at night. You know, get your sins sorted out. What utter tosh. So I hope that answers some of the questions. I'm not speaking next week, so we can't do this week's questions. <laughs> so let's have a look at, we're going to look at part of Hebrews 4. We're going to look at Hebrews 4, 9 to 16. And I'm going to read it from the, the NIV, which used to be called the nearly infallible version, but I'm not that convinced. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us home hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, 
but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I also want us to have a quick look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, which says, May God himself, whoops, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I put that up there is because we are made up of spirit, soul, and body. Do you want to know what you look like? There you go. That's what you look like. Spirit, soul, and body. Now, the body is the easy bit. We all know what the body is. We don't need any great teaching or understanding about the body. The body is the bit, the external container, the bit we preen and maintain, the bit which sometimes breaks down, the bit which gets worn over the years and slowly drop into bits as you get older. But through the body, through the body, we receive stimuli via touch, taste, smell, sight, hearing, the five senses. Now, these are powerful and can be pleasurable. And we all know that a particular sound or smell can unlock memories or emotions from years ago. You can be walking past the shop and just get this sudden smell of something and go, wow, that rem I remember that from when I was 10 years old and blah, 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 blah. They're, they're very powerful. They're l the things that we receive through, the, through our senses can lock in emotions and memories. And for many people, their life totally consists of channeling stimuli through their senses. It's what most people do. They eat, they drink, they touch, they watch, they listen, they smell. That's what life's all about. Let's get as much as we can. Let's receive as much stimuli through our bodies. Let's, let's, let's enjoy life. Now, the soul is made up of our reason, our will, our emotions, our conscience, our mind, our imagination. And for most people, this is like the engine room of their life. This is where decisions are made based on the information they've received through their senses. So through their senses, they will get certain input about things, and they will make decisions of, about their life in their soul, because things will affect their emotions. From birth, we are trained to receive information through our senses. And these affect our soul responses to the world outside. It's the way we bring people up. It's the way kids grow and learn through their senses. They take things in, they take information in. Now the interesting thing is, this is not how God made us. It's the way we tick, it's the way human beings tick, but it's not the way that God made us. We are a spirit being, we have a soul, and we live in a body. But we are essentially a spirit being. And when we are born again, when we experience 
spiritual rebirth, the life flow should be from the inside spirit man outward. Life should not be receiving stimuli through our senses for pleasurable or other reasons. Life is that the very life of God in us breaks out. So our spirit receives from Jesus and our soul translates this so that we understand and it results in action from our body. It's turning everything completely on its head. It's the other way around, exactly. We should be living from our spirit, not from our soul. The dwelling place of God is the center of our being, our spirit. That is where God dwells. John 7 verse 38 says, Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. There will be an outpouring of the life of God from our very being, from our spirit. It will just burst out. This isn't rules and religious observance, far from. This is being partakers of the divine nature. That's what Peter said. We are partakers of the divine nature. You are a spirit being with a soul in a body. And you'll spend eternity with a body. I mean, death is separation of body and spirit. That's why Jesus on the cross gave up the ghost, hence the phrase that we use. Gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit. Death is separation of spirit and body. And people who are dead now will be disembodied spirits, spirits without bodies. But come the resurrection, you're going to get a brand spanking new one back again, right? It'll probably look like the one you've got, but it'll be top model. <laughs> you will be able to recognize one another in glory. You'll be able to shake hands in glory. What people call heaven at the moment is really only like a waiting room. It's not, it's not the end product. It's not the done deal. It's almost, we, until we get our bodies, we won't be, if you want a theological statement, we won't be fully saved until we've got our bodies, and our bodies are saved as well. Now, many people know God's word, but for many people it has no power. They read scripture, but it's merely words on a page, print on paper. This passage that we've read says that the word of God is living and active. If this is true, if it is alive, we can interact with it. We can, it can communicate with us, right? Jesus, John 6, verse 63 says, The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Spirit and life. So we shouldn't read scripture just with our mind. We must engage it with our spirit. We must meditate on Scripture in our spirit 
and our imagination. For many, Scripture is a bit like a sword that remains in its scabbard. It's ours, but it's an ineffective weapon. We need to take the sword out of its scabbard and apply it in our lives. The Romans developed a short sword, which in essence enabled them to conquer the world. It was only about 24 inches long. It was sharpened on both edges. And there was a secret to its effectiveness. And that secret was training and practice, how to use it. Its uniqueness was a liability unless it was used with the proper techniques. And that required extensive practice. Paul told Timothy that he had to be one who correctly handled the word of truth. Similarly to handling the sword. The sword of the spirit, the word, is drawn, is pulled out of the belt of truth. Whole armor of God, belt of truth. The sword of the spirit is drawn out of the belt of truth. So that, for example, at that moment in time, the whole of scripture is not an active word of God for you. But the particular part of Scripture that the Holy Spirit illuminates for you is actually the sword that you need at that moment in time. So it's drawn from the belt of truth. The Word of God properly applied can divide soul and spirit, joint and marrows. That's what it said. Now, now note that it says soul and spirit not soul from spirit, okay? Now, in the early church, there was a belief that whatever was of the spirit was good and anything that was of the body was bad. It was called Gnosticism, okay? Whatever was of the body was bad and fleshly. Whatever was of the spirit was good. And it led to a teaching that Jesus didn't really have a body, that Jesus was a spirit, that Jesus was a bit like a ghost, but he did not have a physical body because body was bad, spirit was good. And this was, this was a heresy which the church, the early church, had to fight against. And John said in one of his letters, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. He also said in 2 John 1 verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, some believe that this dividing by the word, by the sword of the spirit, is like a vertical cut. You know, a bit like when you watch a butcher, you know, and they take their sharp 
knife or whatever, and they go whack, and they divide what's on the bench. Some believe that, separating soul and spirit. I would like you to consider this morning that this is not that type of cut, but this is more a horizontal cut by the spirit, by the sword, through body, soul, and spirit, dividing them all into above the sword and below the sword. Because the active word that cuts through exposes thoughts and attitudes, it says. A horizontal cut through all three, above the sword and below the sword. Now, for the purpose of teaching, we've always split out body, soul, and spirit so that people could get a handle on what each does. But in reality, have you tried to split yours out? It's pretty difficult. You know, it's a bit like the Trinity. We talk about the Trinity and we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, but they are so one. They are so one. There's a reality of them being one. And the same with us. We split it up in teaching, but they are together and they are linked. Now, below the sword, the word exposes the flesh, the lower nature, those aspects that are inclined towards evil desires. And this operates across all three, body, soul, and spirit, because each has unhealthy appetites. Above the sword, it recognizes the positive. So it recognizes the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that, as Paul says, bodily exercise actually does you good in moderation. Don't go mad. <laughs> because you all know that if you, if you lose a bit of weight or you exercise, that your body feels better and you feel better. You feel better emotionally. Your soul feels better. Even your spirit feels better just because you brought your body into order because the three are linked. And that above the sword is our soul. When we worship the Lord, we worship with our soul. Psalms is full of talking about worshiping with our soul. And our spirit is joined with God. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 also mentions certain what I call below the sword activities, okay? Paul was saying to the, to the Christians, he said, when we have sex with prostitutes, it impacts our spirits. Now remember, I was talking about these people having this heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that the body was bad. It was almost as though it believed that the body was not even worth bothering with. The total emphasis was on the spirit. Therefore, if you did bad stuff with your body, it didn't really matter. It didn't really matter. So they were sleeping with prostitutes because that was just your body. It wasn't anything to do with your spirit. But in that same passage, verse 18, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Sins against their own body because every time you have a different sexual partner, it impacts your spirit. And some people who've had a lot of sexual partners are carrying around a lot of influence in their spirit unless it's being dealt with. 
For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Graham Cook, when he's talking about prophecy, says, don't give the first word, give the second word. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that if you've got a prophetic gift, you can see above the sword and below the sword. You can see the good stuff and you can see the bad stuff. And what he's saying is don't speak out the bad stuff. Always speak out the good stuff. Always encourage. Always declare life into the person. It doesn't mean that the stuff below the sword should never ever be mentioned, but the emphasis within prophecy should always be to encourage and to speak life. Let's move on to our final bit of the passage, which is about Jesus, our high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The incarnation is all about God loving us so much that in Christ, he entered the human experience. It's what Christmas is all about. It doesn't get a lot of mention at Christmas because it's usually snow and tinsel and wrapping paper, but the essence of Christmas is the incarnation. Or in other words, the essence of Christian is Christmas is God became man. We got so used to that phrase that sometimes the awesomeness of it just doesn't impact us anymore. God became man. And this wasn't like a 33-year party trick. This wasn't God becoming man for 33 years and then after the cross, when he went back to the Father, he went back to being as he was, as God. That's not what it says. Jesus didn't pretend to be man. No, in Christ, God became man for all time. That means eternity. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. And there is a man in the Godhead today. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That man, Jesus Christ. But he's a man. There is a man in the Godhead today. When we looked at Hebrews 1, the, first big, the very beginning of Hebrew one, Hebrews 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God sent the prophets to bring his word to his people. And then when that didn't work out, God spoke the perfect word. Jesus was born as a baby, as a human being. 
the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Not just some, some bad clone. This was God in the flesh entered our human experience. A man who in his life, short as it was of only 33 years, was tempted more than we will ever be tempted. Was pushed to the extreme more than we will ever be pushed to the extreme. And without sin. Temptation is not sin. Being tempted isn't sin. Giving in to temptation usually is sin. But temptation itself is not sin. As I said before, sin is a choice that we make. When we give in to temptation, we choose to do so. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Do you know what that means? It means you can never ever say, I just could not help it. It means that you can never say, it was just so bad that it just pushed me to the limit and, and, and I could do no other. I had to give in. You can say it, but you're a liar. <laughs> That's what that says. Because it says if ever you're under temptation, God has already provided a way out. The problem is we never look for the way out because we're too busy enjoying the temptation. We quite want to be in that temptation. We chose to go into that temptation in the first place. Jesus never gave in to temptation. And he was tempted, it says, every way like what we are. And that's why I know he was tempted more than me. Because he never gave in and he was pushed further and further and further. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for all the sins of the nation. They used to tie a rope around his leg in case he died so they could drag him out because nobody else was allowed in the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, they would have been killed. They would have been struck. They would have been destroyed by the, the presence and glory of God. And he would go in there and he would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice on the mercy seat in the presence of God. And when he came out, the people heaved a sigh of relief because it meant that God again had accepted the sacrifice for their sins for another year. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. Sealed, he sealed the new covenant of forgiveness. As a high priest, he took his own blood into the heavenly tabernacle and placed it on the mercy seat, providing forgiveness for all of humanity, for all time. Jesus was the better sacrifice than Old Testament sacrifices. He was the perfect sacrifice. His shed blood didn't just cover our sins. Our sins were taken away. Our life your life is no longer defined by sin anymore. Your life is defined 
by the righteousness of Christ who has become or needs to become your very life. Amen? Amen. Thank you.